Welcome to Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and Candy Reed. Welcome to the latest edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and me, Candy Reed. Mark, um, I'm going to hurt you just slightly because right now I'm watching Barbora Krajikova versus uh, Petra Martic. At, and of course, Petra Martic was the one that beat Magda in the first round in uh, Zhengzhou. It looks cold there. Fans in the crowd have got big jackets on. Yeah, actually, the weather took a turn last night, uh, kind of later after we'd played or the day before it was getting colder. Up until then, it had been quite warm. Beijing had moderate to fair weather. And then we got to Zhengzhou and it was very warm but not too hot. And then our match came and right after that, you could feel the weather sort of turning and getting colder. And I actually watched some of the match last night with Serenko and Vekic on TV and I could see everyone was wrapped up, even though that match didn't finish mm. till just on midnight. But um, definitely the weather plays a huge part in how the court's going to play, how high the ball bounces, how quickly it will travel through the air, all those kinds of things. So actually playing Petra, Martic uh, on colder conditions would probably be a little bit nicer just because that ball's not going to jump as high. Yes. But uh, no excuses because she played a great match against us. There have overall been some quite strange results, haven't there, both on the WTA and the ATP Tour. Is that because we're at the end of the season and you've got some tired legs out there, some tired minds as well? Absolutely. I think that this part of the year is always sort of the most challenging mentally and physically. A lot of players travelling with maybe some niggles physically, um, mentally. A lot of people haven't been home now. I mean, if you look at our schedule, we have not been home now since uh, about Cincinnati. So we did Cincinnati and then we went straight up to New York, two weeks in New York, then over to San Diego, then from San Diego to Guangzhou for the WTA there. Then we stayed in Guangzhou for four or five more days before we travelled up to Beijing for a week, and then Zhengzhou, and now Nanchang. So we've been on the road for a couple of months, and it gets it gets tiring. Players are fatigued, they're not um, seeing family, friends, and it's, it's tough to keep pushing yourself. It's an emotional grind. I'm just looking up Cincinnati. It was started on the 14th of August, so that's how long you've been on the road for. Not easy at all. Um, Magda has been playing a lot of doubles and been playing very well indeed. She's not becoming a doubles specialist, but... Top 50 now for both singles and doubles. Yeah, she's been, She's you know, the last couple of years, she's uh, really got her doubles game together, made the semifinals with Roland Garros a couple of years ago with Bernardo Pera. And then obviously this year we made the quarterfinals up in New York at the US Open. And then she's made two semifinals of 1,000-level events in Miami and Beijing this year. So it was nice. Had a good run there with Peyton Stearns, who's a great American player. I want to say up-and-comer, but she's not really an up-and-comer now. She's about 40 in the world. So she's already an established top player. Um, and they had a good time playing together. So hopefully we, we, um, we, we're just a few areas we need to improve before I think we can make that leap into sort of being contenders for those kinds of t- titles. But we're definitely playing some good doubles. Yeah, absolutely. How did she get together with Peyton Stearns? Do you think that they'd mesh well? I'd like that to be the answer, but the reality is it was happy <laughs> coincidence and chaos all at the same time because the way it works on the WTA Tour is you can sign up in advance online to play the event but only a certain number of teams get into that. I believe it's seven or eight. I need to check that. Something like that. And then the rest of these, the players that get into the event sign in on site. And that's about five or six teams that get in. Sign in closes on the Monday at 12 o'clock, usually. 12 o'clock sharp, that's it. So you've got to have signed in with someone. And they're going to take 
the best ranking. So let's say Magda's ranking is 25 and Bernardo's singles ranking is 40. So they get that combined ranking of 65. That's their, their number entering. But what happened is, is you go in to, to see how it's looking at 1150 and you see that actually you're no longer in because there's seven or eight teams that have got a better ranking than you. So now by staying together as a team, you don't help each other. She doesn't, Bernardo won't get in, we won't get in. And obviously it's a significant amount of money as well on the line here. So we split up with Bernardo, unfortunately, uh, because she's such a great player and Magda and her are such good friends. But we were doing, you know, we weren't helping each other. And we re-signed with Peyton Stearns, who had a high enough singles ranking to get us in at the last minute. So we we, we got to, to, to get in and play with her and made the most of it. Did you feel like that partnership was going to go well from the off or did it take a, a few matches to build? Peyton's a good player, so you're always happy when you've got someone good on your side of the net. But she has a big game, which I think matches well with Magda. I think uh, we tend to do well when we're playing with with some big hitters like Bernarda is. Um, I feel like, especially in women's doubles, it's a little bit almost like a volleyball setup where you have someone at the net that's a finisher or a hitter and then someone at the back that can set up. And um, I think Magda and Bernarda have always had a good you know, symbiotic relationship where they, they feel each other on the court and... You know, Bernardo has such great ground strokes and that sort of, it goes well, uh, complements Magda's game with a little bit more finesse and trickery, I would say. Yeah, good. All right. Um, now you're at the end of the Asian swing, first full Asian swing since 2019. Uh, give us an overall sense of how much you've enjoyed it, what the travel's been like. Magda posted an amazing picture. I actually thought it was a first class plane travel, but it turned out to be a train. Yeah, I have quite strong opinions on on the Asian swing, specifically the Chinese one, because I was living out here for so long from 2015 to about 2020. I, I, I think it's great. I, I love being out here. Yep, there's certain challenges that I don't love, whether it's needing my VPN to connect to the internet or not always a big fan of Chinese food every night. But the way these tournaments are run are brilliant. I'll give you some examples. We are always, at every hotel, Magda is greeted and all the players are, or a large proportion of the players are greeted with a big bouquet of flowers. The hotels and the hotel rooms are brilliant. They're they're well-equipped, they're big. The transport is always second to none with their facilities and their cars. It's brilliant. Uh, the tournaments are well-run. The facilities are outstanding. I mean, when I was living here for so long and working, you see how many great facilities they have. But, I mean, it's it, it's it's incredible. I can't. I don't have good enough English vocabulary to describe how good they are because, you know, even in Guangzhou, a smaller 250 event, there's a five or 6,000 seater stadium on center court with, they have another seven or eight outdoor courts with stadiums, smaller stadiums. They have indoor courts, outdoor courts, indoor clay, outdoor clay, gym, hotels on site. And this is at every event. It's really quite outstanding. Yeah, that sounds absolutely wonderful. And uh, just give us a sense of the the train. I've never been on a, a train in China, but that looked very exclusive. Yes, I, I said to Magda, I said, I wish that we had these kinds of trains in Europe or even in the States because um, I've, I've been on the train a lot here. It's a, co- it's a popular way to travel because it's such a vast country. They use it a lot. So the train we were on today and the one we also took from Beijing to Zhengzhou are the high-speed trains. They go about 350 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. And you have three classes, business first or second. But um, we were feeling very lucky because Magda got us all in business class today <laughs> and, and last week. Um, and they're very, very affordable, to be honest with you, especially when you're not paying for them like I'm not. So they're even more, 
but um they're fully flat it's 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 the equivalent of being in a business class of a plane but better you have a fully ah. flat bed big plasma tv you have i think there was only eight seats in in the in the business class cabin but they have two cabins throughout the train it's it's so smooth and so quiet you don't hear a thing you have your own private bathroom there for the eight people in that cabin and um wi-fi power outlets um food i mean just it was unbelievable i do encourage anyone that has instagram to maybe get on magda's instagram and have a look at that because uh that she posted a couple of really really cool videos and pictures of it yeah so good um so given you've said all that it's been a long long season we're in the 10th month are you looking forward to uh, it being over and you you have a few few months at home yeah absolutely it's been uh, i mean the year's been a little bit indescribable I would say but um hasn't finished yet we've got a few more weeks to, to go here one or two more big pushes and and it's also tougher for Magda because after Nanchang she will return to Europe to play Fed Cup which I won't go to that's a team event so hers has a couple more weeks left but I think it's a year that she'll look back on for the rest of her life with a lot of pride and and uh, fond memories and uh, hopefully we can uh, build on this for next year. Yeah, I do hope so, because uh, I think Team Lynette's done magnificently. Any highlights apart from, I suppose, the Australian Open semi-final has to be the the biggest highlight, but anything that, looking back, you're really proud of yourself and anything that, looking back, you'd like to change? Yeah, we need a whole other podcast for the things that, like, <laughs> um, I've made some, you know, scheduling mistakes on, on how many tournaments we played, where we played pushed her too hard sometimes I would want to say I never I didn't push her enough at times but that's not true I definitely am more guilty of always pushing for too much but um, yeah lots of mistakes for sure I wish that I'd been as a coach in this position before having achieved what we did at the start of the year so I could have maybe shortcutted a few things and bypassed a few yeah a few missteps that we've taken but overall I think yeah Australia was such a great experience but I think now how she's done even at the US Open, you know, to beat Saznovich as we did and then come to Asia and make a final around a 16 um, and then a semi-final in the doubles. I think she should be real proud of that. Um, there was a lot of good moments this year and a lot of areas we can improve on. Even, you know, looking back in Miami, getting to the round of 16 there as well was really or quarters. I don't remember what we did there, but a really good run there as well. So there's, I think the biggest thing as well is that it, it, it sounds cliche, but off-court, Magda hasn't changed as a person in terms of the way she carries herself I think she's still just as approachable and nice and caring and conscientious so I think she's a real fan favorite all over the world although I am biased but I see it week in and week out and she has a lot of support everywhere she goes and I think that's the real testament to how well she's carried herself and I think that's probably the thing we'll be most proud of this year. There's a lot to be said for that isn't there she has a lot of class I think everybody you meet sees that and she could have easily changed and um, become a, a little bit more egotistical, but uh, that certainly hasn't come across. There was something that struck me, I think, that you've said, Piotr Szczespitalski has said, and uh, Olga Moritzova, actually, I met her last week because I used to play with her daughter and she used to coach me a bit. She was a finalist at Wimbledon. All of you have told me at one point or another that actually it's more intensity, but less time on court. So now when I'm coaching and I've had a few more weeks now, a little bit more free time to coach, that my sessions now have been sort of 90 minutes of high intensity and that's it, as opposed to doing double sessions, a little bit more relaxed. And I think that has really struck me. What about you? 
Yeah, I, I agree with it. I think that, you know, that's where the good coaches really separate themselves is knowing how much to push, when to push. You know, I wrote down the other day and I said this to Major, I said, you know, it's important as a player is you either have to fall, you fall into one or two categories for me if you're going to be successful. When I was playing, I was able to push myself to the limit day in and day out. I did not need anyone to push me ever. I, I would be the first guy there, the last to leave. I would run till I threw up. I was I, I, I never needed someone to push me. But I understand not everyone's like that. But if you're not like that, then you need to make sure that you fall into the category of, of being someone that says, I can't do it, but I'm willing to let you push me as far as you can or as far as I can go. And I think that's really important because you, some players don't push themselves but they're not completely willing to sort of submit themselves to the process of being pushed as far as they can be pushed by somebody else. Mm. So that's really important. And I think a good coach was going back to your point is knowing how much a player needs at each time of their career, because there's no way I'm training a 15 year old or a 14 year old the same way I'm training Magda. It's, it's completely different. So you have to be able to adapt to the player and their needs and their stage of their career. Because there's still an, a, a, a basic amount of understanding that from the you know, science suggests that you need a certain amount of volume behind you. Magda yes. has more fulfilled that volume. She's done her hours on the court. So now we have got to a point of saying, you know what, 90 minutes on court a day is more than enough for us at this stage of her life, this age where we are. Now in the off season, we'll do a little bit more, you know, but, but if I was working with Mira and Draver, I wouldn't be saying the same thing. That's for okay. sure. And so if you were working with Mira Andreva, what would you ideally do? And we're talking about not a tournament week. Well, she's got to have, she needs, she needs an amount of volume that's conducive to her improvement. It would depend on how talented she is. And I put that in quotation marks because talent for me is just a, a simple way of saying how quick do you learn? Yes. So that's, that's for me, the basic understanding of talent. Now, if she learns quick, we can spend less time doing it and less time on the court. Do you stay on the court till you get it right or do you stay on the court till you can't get it wrong? I, I would probably fall into the latter of those two. But with Magda now, I've had to sort of maybe change that a little bit. And as soon as we get something right and we're feeling good with it, let's move on. Um, if I was with Mira Andreva or someone like that, um, yes, there would be more volume. There would be days where we're doing two sessions. There would be more mm. of an emphasis on the fitness. And then you would you would have to, it's a completely different project and your goals short-term, long-term would be different. Um, and the personality plays a key part as well because, again, like I, I sort of said with that tamed animal versus the caged one, is she somebody that wants to play lots of tennis or are you going to have to push her to play a lot? Um, if you're having to push her to play a lot, you're going to be in that constant battle of having to balance out how much you do and how much you can get out of her. There's so many factors, and that's where the best coaches in the world are able to evaluate the player, evaluate their needs, and then create sort of a plan of action. You know, it's like so many comments I get, so many messages. I, I get probably five messages a week on different media outlets from people saying, hey, I watched Magda's play her match last week and she lost and she sucked at moving this way or her forehand is terrible or her backhand is useless or she has no mental strength call me and i can help you but it's very easy to point out as a comment you know a commentator or a spectator can point out what's wrong a commentator can point out what's wrong and suggest what should be done to improve it but a coach is the bridge between all three of those things that can then see the problem see the solution and create a plan of action to 
get to where you want to be. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And it was something that Eddie Elliott actually mentioned on the last podcast that he said um, he would set Lauren a drill because of her age. I think she's late twenties now, maybe early thirties that he would say, right, we're going to do this for 10 minutes and we're going to, you know, even if we don't get it, we're only going to do it for 10 minutes. What do you think about that philosophy? Yeah, I think, I think there's no right or wrong way. There's just the right or wrong way for that player at that Mm -hmm. moment. Because yeah. there's some exercises. If you came and videoed me doing some of the things I do with Magda, you would think I'm crazy, or you would think, "What? What are we doing here? There's no point to that drill. It doesn't serve the purpose that you might think it's serving." But until you know the player in, intimately, when you've spent years working with a player and get to know someone, you know that right now she's struggling with confidence. So doing this exercise where we're going to stand for five minutes and feed her finishing volleys on top of the net because that's going to make her feel good. Because when you get out there and you mm-hmm. smash a ball as hard as you can into a court for a winner for five or 10 minutes, you're going to feel better about yourself after that. Mm-hmm. I know that I can't work on her weakness when she's not confident. can't do that. She's already not confident. i got to exaggerate the strengths and minimize the weaknesses during that time. Do we lose? I actually don't think it's the best time to learn something. I think the best time to learn something is after a win because she's happy, she's excited, she's more open to information and then I can manipulate a little bit more on the courts and things because she's happy. Whereas when she loses, that's maybe a time where I have to step back and go, okay, let's work on not maybe what we need to work on in terms of progress, but what we need to work on right now, today. Because getting through today, and that's what a full-time or a tour coach sort of understands that maybe a, I don't want to say a country club coach or an academy coach doesn't because they clock in and they clock out you know when I go to practice with Magda in the day and then we eat dinner together at night and I know she's not feeling good just because of the way she's sitting at that dinner she's yeah. not talking she's quiet she's sad I know how she is what mental space she's in so that now affects me directly the next day how I'm going to start that practice the next day and so I might not get to do what I really want to do which might have been to really make her physically work on something difficult that day that she's not good at I can't do that I've got to do something that's conducive to her mood and the situation of the moment and that brings us to our next point because there was another discussion I had with Eddie uh, again, Lauren Davis's coach about uh, how quickly some of the women do change coaches. And he's saying it's pretty crazy because you need the long term chemistry. You need the understanding to really bring the best out of your player. Lauren and Eddie have been together a long time as well. So I really, you know, I always respect that when when players and coaches stay loyal to each other. I think that says a lot for the character of both people. I mean, you can look at someone like Emma Raducanu and she'll say, well, you know, her philosophy, from what I understand, is that she believes that in six to nine months, she can extrapolate almost all of the information that a coach will have. So after that time, his value declines significantly. It's an, I don't think I agree with it, but it's an interesting take. And I can't really argue with the fact that she won a grand slam. Mm. So there's something to be said for it. But I think what it comes down to is, and I see this a lot on social media, is people are very quick to criticize another coach's drill or the way that a coach is scheduling or what's happening on or off the court in those in, in, in events like that. You don't know what's going on with a certain player and a coach. You don't know what's going on off the court in their personal lives, what's affecting. So don't jump to conclusions or make uh, too many criticisms before you have all the facts, because I can assure you that if you came and watched some of our practices, 
you'd wonder if I knew anything about tennis. <laughs> but there's usually a method to the madness somewhere. Well, I think you've done something right, haven't you? A player who's been in the top 20 and is sitting just outside there. What are you hoping about your chances to Zuhai? That's the elite trophy for players ranked between 9 and 20. Yes, that's uh, it's definitely still in the back of the mind. I think we did a good job in Beijing, giving ourselves a chance, uh, keeping us in the discussion at the least. Uh, this week, obviously, wasn't wasn't good in Jingzhou, losing first round to Petra. So um, we're going to have to see some. We're going to have to have some luck. Some results are going to have to go our way. Some players are going to maybe not have to play. This is where you hope being in China at the end of the year and being away from home, some players might opt to not play it for different reasons because um, it would be a nice thing because this is the last year of the event. So it yeah. will no longer be taking place after this year. And it would always be such a nice achievement and accomplishment, I think, to say you played in a year-end championship. Oh, it'd be so good if she can make it. She's right on on the verge. So you've got some waiting. So what's your plans now? So we are in Nanchang now. We, we, are, we actually gave her um, three days off here with no tennis. The feeling I have right now is I want her to... It's almost like when you keep a dog on a, you know, in the house all day, and by the end of the day, they're they're so desperate to get out the front door and go running outside. Mm-hmm. I feel a little bit at the moment like we, I want to have her get to that point where we go onto the court next time. She's really excited to get back on the court and play. Um, and this week, I think was a little bit of a flat week where it was a little bit of a culmination of fatigue from the last few tournaments, etc., and the traveling and the end of the year and a whole plethora of factors but I think that by having her not play for a few days hopefully that when Monday comes and that match starts she's eager to get on the court and excited to play tennis um, rather than kind of being a little bit tired. And when she doesn't play is she still working out in the gym is she still doing some form of exercise or is she just completely taking three days off? So, so, so we lost Tuesday night Wednesday, she did absolutely nothing. I know she told me she slept in till about, I think, about one o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. And that was really good. She needed that because this is, we're at a, a point of not being tired. This is not tiredness now. This is fatigue. This is, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? There's that difference I between, you know, you're tired because you had a bad week, you had a bad night's sleep. Fatigue for me is that kind of culmination of long term, continual stress and, 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 and tiredness basically from the year. So this isn't going to be slept off in a day or two. So she did Wednesday did nothing. Thursday was a travel day today. Friday will be the third day off. And that day will be something in the gym. She will do some 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 gym workout in there, get the body moving. But don't get on a tennis court. Don't see a tennis ball. Don't have a racket in your hand. Don't be doing those things that are sort of mundane things and repetitive to her. You know, maybe tomorrow we're going to go find a, a cinema if we can that's got an English movie on or uh, all three of us will go find some. We we found a place we can go play some pool. So uh, something outside of tennis to keep her excitement levels high for the last push of the year. Good. All right. That sounds really good and really healthy. And just looking, um, last question to next year, the Australian Open have announced they're going to start the tournament on a Sunday. Your thoughts? It's just like the French Open. Yeah, I, I suppose... The reality is it doesn't make much difference to, to most players. I I don't love it. I don't love that they didn't consult with the players or the coaches and nobody got asked if this is something they would like. By the end of the day, they own the tournament. They can do what they want. Um, so I, I would imagine that 
the reason they did it is because that's one extra day of ticket sales and TV rights and sponsors that they can sell for one day. So, um, you know, and I know that after COVID that year where they were still able to run the event and they did so, so successfully um, that year cost them a lot of money and put them in a lot of debt. So I think that they're still needing to, to try and, you know, claim back some of that, those losses and this will be a way of doing it. Um, they've also said it will alleviate the late night finishes mm. because they can spread matches out a little bit more and, and start a little bit earlier in the night sessions and not, not be so late. So we'll see. We'll see if other uh, if it works and if so, do other tournaments adopt that? Um, I know French Open did it first. They've been doing it for a few years now. So um, it's a little bit disappointing. Like this year when we played at the French Open, we lost, I think, first match or second match on court Mathieu. And I think by about three o'clock on Sunday, we were at the tournament, which feels like you haven't even got to the tournament before you're out of it so that's a little bit of a, a, a sort of a negative to that but mm. you know it is what it is and I was actually on commentary for the Andy Murray uh, Tanasi Kokonakis uh, Australian Open match that finished at just past 4am so uh, I think that was the the main reason wasn't it that Craig Tiley used to say we need a Sunday start so we can eke out the matches throughout essentially 15 days as opposed to 14. I think I, for me I I understand. I think that he can make that argument, but I also think they could start matches earlier every day yeah. on all the courts. You know, instead of starting at one or whatever time it is, two o'clock on some of the show courts, start earlier. Let's have all the courts starting at 11. I don't think you'll have that problem anymore. There we go. You should have consulted you, Mark. That will do it uh, for this edition. We do have some listener questions, though. So we've got uh, three good ones. Brilliant. Looking forward to hear those. Okay, Mark, let's do the listener questions. And we've got a couple from Michael. I think it's uh, Mikhail. Uh, And he asks, I would love to hear Mark's best tennis metaphor. As I remember, he really likes to use them. And they have to be very interesting. And he says uh, in brackets, if they're not a secret. So what's your best metaphor? You know, um, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I have so many on the on the in the on the court when we're working. Um, and actually, Ian's Ian's probably better on that than I am. One that always stayed with me was a, a coach, a good coach, Luis Nascimento, helped me a lot over the years in Florida. He's worked with a lot of top players, and he always sort of described to me that there was two kinds of players. There's there's the wild animal that needs to be caged, mm-hmm. and there's the the caged animal that needs to be freed. And you really need to know which one you're working with so are you working with a player if you were working with a on the extreme end a, a wild animal maybe like Kyrgios for example mm-hmm. he's somebody that maybe needs some taming and you have to sort of put some rules in there and create some boundaries and you know create some discipline and then you have other players in for example Magda may be one of those that falls more into that category of sort of being a, a caged or a tamed animal that needs to be freed a little bit mm. and so when she's on our practices or when we're we're we're, we're working it's very much a case of trying to free her up and let her play with some instincts because I think she's suppressed those so much of her life on the tennis court. That's a great question. I should come, I should, uh, some more will come to me. Do you think most people on the WTA tour would fall into one category? You know, I think that men and women would typically, I think there'll be a difference in that as well. I think a lot of the female mm. players, because they're coached by men, we bear a lot of the responsibility on their shortcomings because the, obviously the way we train them isn't always the way we would train a man. And I think that's a big part of the problem is that w- women's practices, we tend to be more structured, tends yes. to be less competitive, tends to be um, a little bit more technical 
Uh, whereas if you watch a lot of the men's practices, they're far more uh, unstructured, competitive practices. I think that's a major difference. I, 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 there was a great study that somebody did years ago um, with a, with a, a female basketball, sorry, female volleyball team, and they put out some basketballs or some volleyballs in the gym left them there for a while and didn't show up and wanted to see with a camera what would happen. And and the girls eventually picked up a ball and started throwing it around while they were chatting with each other in a very casual, non-competitive, fun way. They did yes. the same thing with the men's team. I had a camera watching them and immediately when they realized the coaches weren't going to show up, they picked up a ball, separated themselves into two teams and played a full game. Yeah. And that's a big difference between the men and the women. And so I think that sometimes the men can can do better by learning some of the female attributes. I think a lot of the men actually technically aren't as good as they could be, but they're not so willing to put in those hours that the women tend to do on the court, working on the boring, laborious, technical stuff. You know what I mean? The, mm. That kind of stuff. So I think there's there's a big difference there in the men and women's stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. And And what about using metaphors in coaching? How valuable is that? It's the absolute number one way people learn. People, for me, it's so important how how it's, it's the biggest tool in coaching is is to use metaphors because it gives somebody something almost tangible to to be able to feel or see uh, and understand. And uh, I think a lot during the matches, especially now with on court coaching and off court coaching, we try to employ as many metaphors as we can to help Magda in in stressful moments. I agree with you. I think it's I coach at a lower level than you do, obviously, but um, I think it's so valuable. And it's something I think the longer you coach, the more metaphors you use and the more you realize how valuable they are, because it's a way of communicating, isn't it? it exactly. And I think it's a huge way for humans in general use metaphors to to coach um, and to talk. Uh, you know, when I tried to learn a proper golf swing, I've I've noticed that the golf coaches use metaphors when they're talking when you're in school there was a lot of metaphors and analogies and synonyms and all these kinds of things so trying to tie relationships together is a really big part of coaching yeah really good uh Mikhail also asks he has a second question he says uh, how do players choose their practice partners we have spoken a little bit about this but perhaps you could remind him yeah uh, practice partners are at uh, tournaments it's obviously whoever's in the tournament will be your limited pool of players to choose from so this week you know, at the tournament we're at, it's a 32-player draw plus qualifying. So you're really only looking at the main draw players that are going to want to practice because we get here, you know, a couple of days later than the qualifying players would. So 32 to 40 players to choose from. Um, if you know who's there, you may contact them in advance and say, hey, do you want to practice Friday? Do you want to practice Saturday? That's typically the way we try to, to structure it. But if you haven't been able to do that for whatever reason... Um, you'll call the tournament and reserve a court plus looking is what they'll put. So they'll put Magdalenette mm. plus looking. And later that day, another player may phone up and say, hey, I'm looking for a practice. Is there anyone else looking? And they'll pay you guys together. Okay, interesting. And I actually found at the US Open, I went uh, to the matches early. So matches obviously start at 11. I went to the practice court at, say, 9.30, uh, just to see who was practicing with whom, because I find that fascinating why they pick a particular person. Do you find that Magda likes to practice with people she likes or perhaps people that she's hit with before and then she's won matches and it's kind of a superstition thing? I think it's it's a combination. I think it depends on the moment. If we're going through a phase of struggling, lack of confidence, 
I'm not sure how much you want to be practicing with Sabalenka or Rybakina. Yes. I think those um you have to as a coach, that's where Ian and I the part of our job is to sort of assess the, the situation where we're at. For example, Saturday the draw will come out for the tournament that starts Monday. So usually we don't reserve a practice for the Sunday, the day before the tournament starts. We won't have booked or scheduled a practice with anyone. Because if the draw comes out and we're playing a left-handed short grinder, yes, I want something that might be slightly relevant on Sunday. So I don't want to have agreed to practice with Pagula three days before, if you know what I mean. So I wouldn't want to set, tell Jessica, hey, let's practice Sunday. So so that day before the tournament begins, we always try to keep that one blank until we know who we're playing. But just as the opportunity would be, would I wouldn't want to practice with a, a right-handed, you know, attacking player if I'm playing a grinder. So so that day we try to keep it a little bit more specific to the match. Um, but in general, it's, yeah, it's it, it, the players have to work together to make this work otherwise it just doesn't fly yeah I remember Shelby Rogers um I don't know who she was talking about but she was just quite upset it was a while ago uh before she was injured but it was someone she was practicing with and they kept you know missing or hitting trying to hit winners and she she was just sort of flabbergasted and you want that rhythm don't you that's the point of a practice partner to get good rhythm get good timing get used to the tennis balls which are always controversial and the surface court and the speed Certainly we have our list. I think I've said on, on this show before, we have our list of blacklisted players that we don't enjoy practicing with. Um, and it's not usually anything to do with that person's tennis. It's just more about the attitude because what you want is you want to have a an inv- a healthy, fun, no, I don't say fun. That's not the right word, but a healthy, uh, in, what's the right way to put it? We're not there for fun. So don't get me wrong on that, but you want an environment mm. that's conducive to improving. Yes. Don't want to be playing with someone that might be cheating the whole practice or someone that has no um you know care about showing up on time these kinds of things so there's definitely certain players we we do avoid and i think you know one thing we've said this year is that every time we've practiced with a player and beaten the hell out of them in the practice they go on and win the tournament so <laughs> maybe uh we're a few good i think we've practiced with serana castella who's such a nice girl and she works with thomas johansson who's you know, for me, he's one of the best coaches out there. I mean, he was a great player. Every time I talk with him, he's a guy you learn something from. Yes. And so I think we practiced with her at US Open this year. And I, you, you don't want to quote me, but it was either like six love or six one. I mean, we were just dominating Serana and we lost second round and she ended up making quarterfinals. <laughs> um, same this year in Austin, Texas. We played with Kostyuk, beat her six love in a set. She won the tournament. We lost first round. So it's also another really strong indicator that what happens in practice is not relevant entirely. Yeah. want to yeah. have good practices. But but sometimes I've also found that when we have really good practices, it can be a little bit of a danger if you go into a match on Monday and you've played four practices and you've won every practice that you've played. You're playing great. It not always is what you want because you get into Monday feeling great and the first adversity mm. you face and you suddenly panic. Oh, I haven't had this. This hasn't happened before or recently, right. you know. So and then on the flip side, you don't want to go in feeling like you've just lost the last five practices you've had because <laughs> you don't have any confidence. So it's a real balancing act. They say, don't they, bad dress rehearsal, good show. Exactly right. But uh, exactly you don't want right. too bad a dress rehearsal because then, like you said, no confidence. And confidence is a very, very fickle thing in tennis, perhaps more so than any other 100%. sport or any occupation in the world. Um, we've got a question from Magda Lynette fan page, which is quite relevant. 
And it's a question about Grand Sams, or as I call them, majors. They're the most important tournaments of the year. Is there anything you do differently from when preparing for the biggest events? How do you prepare and how do you manage a player's performance to peak during the slams? It's a great question. It's, it's definitely where you would like to peak. So typically before a Grand Slam, which is obviously Australia, Roland Garros, Wimbledon or US Open, there'll be warm-up or lead, lead tournaments into that event. The top players will typically not play the week before. So let's say US Open that's just happened this year. There'll be Montreal, Cincinnati leading into that. And then the week following that is Cleveland, which will be a smaller event. Most of the top level players are going to get to New York early, maybe get there on the Monday or Tuesday the week before, get settled into the hotel, get acclimated to the courts, the balls, the conditions, kind of settle in, especially if you're at the top end of the game. There's so many, they have so many uh, responsibilities and obligations with regards to sponsor appearances and all these kinds of events they have to attend. So it gives them time to settle in and get ready for that. Um, but yeah, in general, you're going to try and plan your year around those. So everything you do on and off the court, fitness wise, psychologically, your training, your, your micro macro meso cycles of the year, the way you periodize the program will be, will be with the goal of trying to peak and play your best at those events. There's a lot of science behind the periodization, uh, that really began in Russia years ago mm. for the Olympics when they were trying to get ready their athletes ready for the Olympics, especially in the weightlifting and things like this. So there's a lot of science behind it. But unfortunately, in tennis, it's not quite so cut and dry because, you know, it's, it's not a closed sport. It's not weightlifting or cycling, which is, you know, it's still important, of course. But there's also someone down the other side of the court that's been doing the same. So they might be peaking and you might be peaking and you both not both can win. So in my experience, we, we do definitely try to work the four slams as the major parts of the year and, and prepare accordingly. But uh, for me, it's not always so simple as as peaking there because this year in Australia, when we had our success, we went and did well in the United Cup the week before the Open. In Melbourne, we lost first round in Hobart, went to the Open and had a great event. We then went to Roland Garros lost second round the week before, lost first round of Roland Garros. Wimbledon didn't play the week before, made it to the third round. So I have yet for us to find a pattern. With um, the Australian Open, which, of course, next January, you've got points to defend. How much is that on your mind now, given that we're speaking in October 2023? It's it's not on my mind day to day. You know it's there. Magda knows it's there. But it's 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 an honor to have those points coming off in a way and you have mm. a chance to defend them. If, you know, ideally, I would love to be defending seven or eight hundred points every week. That's what I'd love, because yes. that means we're doing well every week of the year. So, yes, they're there. We know they may drop off if we don't defend them. But I think for us, what we're focusing on is more we're playing better now tennis than we were back in January. So for me, the opportunities are greater and a lot of things have to work for that to fall into place but you know as I've said to Magda if it doesn't happen and if it never happens again that you make a Grand Slam semi-final I'd still rather it happen once than never. Absolutely and the fact that she's reached the top 20 in the world I mean how many people can can say they've done that in one of the hardest sports particularly uh, biggest sport really for women in the world isn't it? It's a testament to Magda that when she finished Australia she was ranked 23 after the Open and we're now 
eight, nine months later in middle of October, approximately. And we're currently 23 in the world. Mm. So she's maintained, I shouldn't say we, she's maintained her her ranking for a whole year now, give or take. So um, that's not an easy thing to do because tennis is about, it rewards consistency as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think uh, you and Team Lynette should all be very proud of themselves because we can hear as uh, listeners on Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach how difficult it is and how the emotions come into it, the practicalities is it's just so, so incredibly difficult. So congratulations to you all. All right, that will do the listener questions for this week, Mark. But of course, you're always up for for answering more. So can you remind our listeners where they can go uh, to send their questions in? Absolutely. Thanks for the questions there. I think it was Michael. Thanks very much for, for sending those in and listening. And I love hearing these questions because they're, they're really great observations. And it's nice to hear from people that aren't maybe in the sport day to day because they have a completely different perspective. And I had I had somebody ask me not too long ago, they asked me when they were watching a practice with Magda and I practicing cross court. And they said to me, are you not supposed to hit the ball away from the opponent during the match? So why do you spend the whole practice hitting it to each other? <laughs> I thought it was kind of an interesting point from someone that wasn't involved in tennis as, as much yeah. as we are. Well, it is an interesting um, point, but I suppose the, the answer to that is we've got to have the control, don't you? So you should be able to hit the ball into the space, exactly. but you've also got to hit the ball back to the partner, otherwise exactly. the practice wouldn't be so good. A hundred percent. But but absolutely feel free to reach out to Candy or, or myself through our Twitter, Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach. It's at D-O-A-P-T-C. That will do it for this week, Mark. Thank you for your time and we will speak soon. Thanks a lot, Candy. Thanks everyone for listening.